And uh, so she uh, climbed up into the barn uh, loft, and uh, she really believed. And she jumped out of the mow and knocked herself out. So uh, not to be uh, outdone, she went back up into the mow a couple of uh, uh, weeks later, uh, jumped again in faith, and uh, with the same result. I uh, understand she has not been jumping out of barns lately, which uh, may give the lie to the old uh, mule skinner's axiom that you never learn anything the second time you get kicked by a mule. Uh, she stands, uh, in my mind, as an illustration of the danger that uh, can result from uninformed faith. Sometimes we think we understand God's Word, and uh, we set out trusting God's Word, and we discover that we're not acting according to uh, God's will at all. There have been some terrible travesties uh, uh, within the church over the years as a result of uh, acting uh, out of uh, ignorance, believing the wrong things, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Salem Witch Trials. Perhaps the, the saddest page in the history of the church was in the 13th century when a young French shepherd boy thought he had seen a vision of the risen Christ dressed as a pilgrim who told him to gather the children of France and to march with them across the Alps to Canaan and deliver the holy sites from the Turks. And so he went back to the churches of Brittany and he preached and he gathered an army of children, 30,000 strong. Uh, Something like 25,000 of them lost their lives as they crossed the Alps. Others were drowned in the Mediterranean. He assured them that when they reached Marseille, the, the waters uh, of the Mediterranean would part and they would walk on dry ground to the promised land. Many of the children perished there in the, in the waters of the Mediterranean. Others made it as far as the tip of Italy where they were captured and sold into slavery. I understand none of them reached uh, Canaan and very few of them ever went home. Over 30,000 children lost their lives. It's one of the saddest periods of church history, all because of uninformed faith. Now, all of us have had the experience of thinking we understand God's will and uh, not really having grasped it and acting uh, out of that error and uh, reaping the consequences of it. But in my mind, the far greater problem is when we are correctly informed by Scripture, when we understand fully what God's will is, and we act out of obedience and faith, and our whole world comes apart at the seams. Everything comes unstuck. That's, uh, that's very discouraging. Uh, some of you have poured your lives out to your spouses for years, only to have them walk away from the marriage. In the end, some of you have have been faithful in parenting your children. You've ministered to your children and taught them and encouraged them to walk with God, only to see them in the end walk away from God. Some of you have given yourselves unreservedly and wholeheartedly to your employers, and uh, 
in the end they sacked you. And that's very disillusioning. Particularly when we are sure that we are acting according to the will of God. Now I want you to know that our Lord understands because he himself went through a very dark period in your life where he did the will of God and everything fell apart in his life and he was terribly disillusioned. Now as Hebrews tells us, we have a high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities because he was in all points tested as we are. Now, what that passage tells us is that our Lord has gone through every experience of life that we ourselves have endured. He understands these dark periods of disillusionment. Now, uh, interestingly enough, the story is told not in the New Testament, as we might expect, but in the book of Isaiah. Would you turn with me to the 49th chapter of Isaiah? Isaiah 49. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah is a little to the right of halfway through your Bible. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, is the second of the so-called servant psalms in the prophecies of Isaiah. The first is found in chapter 42. The second is here in 49. The third is found in chapter 50. Uh, The last and perhaps the best known is Isaiah 52 and 53. The depiction there, the uh, portrait there of the suffering servant. Uh, You're probably familiar with some of these uh, songs. They're just little vignettes, little pictures of the servant of the Lord. In chapter 42, we're told that uh, he won't promote himself. He doesn't cry loud in the streets. Doesn't talk about himself. He's humble in his ministry. He doesn't crush broken reeds. He doesn't extinguish burning flaxes. He sees potential in the weakest and most broken of us and ministers to us. It's the kind of servant that he is. We're going to read chapter 49 in a moment. Chapter 50 is the third of those songs where. Uh, The servant himself says, uh, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned so I can know how to speak a word in season to him, him it's weary. The Lord God opens, he wakes me morning by morning, he opens my ear to hear as, as one who is taught, as one who is discipled by God himself. Wonderful picture of our Lord's preparation for ministry. And then in chapter 52, 53. The servant says, uh, who has believed our report? That is what Israel has said. Uh, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, the servant, will grow up before him as a tender plant and uh, as a root out of of dry ground. And then it goes on to depict the sufferings of the servant. Wonderful little pictures of the servant's life. Now the question is, who is the servant of the Lord? Well, uh, Jewish scholars, the old time Uh, Students of Scripture pondered this question and they had different answers. Some thought that the servant was Isaiah himself, and certainly some of the songs can can fit, uh, would fit into the prophecies of Isaiah. Others say, uh, no, the servant is Israel. Uh, 
a personification of the nation. And again, as we will read this morning, the servant himself is called Israel. That's his name. So that's a possibility. Third uh, possibility is that the servant is the Messiah, the anointed one, the seed of Abraham who is to come and bring salvation to the world. Some of the rabbis believe fully that the servant was the Messiah. But uh, when you come to the New Testament, there's no question about who the servant is. It's our Lord Jesus, because the gospel writers quote texts from the servant songs and apply them directly to, to Jesus. And, and Peter, in his first epistle, develops his whole uh, uh, theology of the cross and the atonement by quoting Isaiah 52 and 53 and applying those statements about our Lord's substitutionary death uh, to uh, the Lord Jesus himself. So uh, for those of us that accept the authority of the apostles in the New Testament, there's no question in our mind, the servant is our Lord Jesus. That's why I love these songs, because they, as so many of the psalms do that we can put in our Lord's uh, mouth, tell us what was going on inside our Lord. Uh, the Gospels tell about his behavior, and the outward uh, aspects of his ministry, his words, his his ministry, his, uh, his miracles. But uh, the servant songs tell us how he felt, what emotions were going through his mind, what his heart was doing while he was ministering. And uh, this, this song tells us that at one point in his life, he, he was ready to give up. He says, I have labored, in verse 4, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. And uh, that may be the way you feel this morning. You feel that uh, you've given the Christian life your best shot. You've tried your very best to walk with God. And uh, he's just been stringing you along. He's not, he's not coming through uh, with regard to his promises. Now, if that's uh, the way you feel this morning, this, this song will speak to you. And this song has comforted me uh, numerous times in my own life and, and ministry. Well, let's begin reading with verse 1. The servant uh, speaks. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. The servant begins by addressing himself to the, uh, to the islands. And uh, if you're familiar with Hebrew parallelism, you know that the second line, the second line in, in, in Semitic poetry, very often elaborates or defines or explains the first line. So in the second line, you have an explanation of this term islands. Uh, we read uh, his announcement to the islands and we say, to whom is he referring? Well, the second line tells us it's to the distant nations. That's us. The islands, in Israel's thinking, were these uh, little spots of dry land out in the Mediterranean, far off from 
Israel far away from uh, the promised land, the distant nations uh, that made up what they call the, the Gentiles, the Goyim, and uh, it includes us. If you look at a map, Carolyn just got a globe for Christmas, and I was looking at it the other day, and it's apparent that the Western Hemisphere is really just one great big island, one great landmass protruding up uh, out of the waters. And uh, this is for us. This, this psalm is addressed to us, the Gentiles, living in, in the, uh, far away from, uh, from Israel. Uh, the, uh, the Jews often referred to Gentiles as those that were far away, and Paul himself picks up that term in the New Testament when he says, those that were far away have been brought near in Christ. So uh, we're the ones that were distant. We're part of these uh, distant nations, the islands to whom he addresses himself. And then uh, he tells us in the second half of that verse about his call. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. Again, the parallelism suggests that uh, remembering his name or recording, recording his name, mentioning his name, is, has to do with his call. He was called by name. To do what? Well, to be God's prophet. Like uh, Samuel, who was the first prophet who was called from his mother's womb. And like Jeremiah, who was called before he was born. Before uh, the child became a man. Before the child was even born. God called the servant to himself to be his spokesman. To be his, uh, his prophet. To, as he puts it uh, in verse 5, to bring Jacob back to him, back to God. And gather Israel to himself. This uh, word is translated bring here is the word that we've referred to numerous times. Uh, that was the bread and butter word of the prophets. The, the prophet's primary message was return, return, return to God. God raised up prophets and prophetesses in, in critical times, times of spiritual declension, to call God's people back into a personal relationship with him. And as I've indicated, the word that they use is the Hebrew word shuv, shuv, return, return. As Dr. Kaiser says, uh, God called the prophets to give Israel a shuv in the right direction, uh, to get them to come back to God and, and, and back to his love. And that was, that was the call that, that the servant had. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was a prophet who proclaimed the truth about God. And uh, then he gives us a word about his giftedness in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished or a select arrow. And concealed me in his in his quiver. Uh, he was given the gift of speech. That's how the servant uh, ministered. He taught people. He said, "Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you." Which was the yoke of discipleship. That's the term that the rabbis used to describe a discipling relationship. Take. My yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm meek and humble in heart. And you'll find rest from your souls. To, to build his kingdom, he didn't use uh, guns and tanks and, and armies. He used the word, the spoken word. 
and the, the gentle persuasion that, that drew people into a relationship with, with God. When he spoke, people said, no one ever spoke like this before. What gracious words proceed from his mouth. He just spoke. That's all. He used the word. And people were drawn to God. Um, I'm sure you will understand the spirit in which I say this. Very often people will come and they'll say, well, what, what are you men, are you elders and the other leadership in the church, what, what are you all doing there to, to, to attract people? I mean, why do these people come here? Uh, what are the, what are the uh, programs that you've installed that make this thing work? And, 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 and we always have the same response. We say, well, we don't have any gimmicks. We don't have any tricks. All we do is just tell people what Jesus said. We, we, we say again what the apostles and the prophets have said. Because that word is truth. And it's incisive. And it speaks to the heart. The depths of God speak to our, our depths. And, and whenever we teach the scriptures and simply say again what, what Jesus said, it, it rings true. People say that's according to reality. That, that makes sense to me. And if there's any secret... Uh, to what, what's going on here, it's simply that uh, we want people to understand what Jesus and the prophets and the apostles have to say because these words are incisive. I, I love the metaphors here. It's like a, actually the word for sword is, is the word for a little dagger, a little short, you know, the short range weapon. And then the arrow is the long range weapon that penetrates from a, from a distance. And uh, he's described here is a polished arrow, arrow, literally a, a selected arrow. Each archer had his, his preferred arrow, one that he worked on and polished and straightened, and it flew straight to the mark. And, and that's, that was characteristic of the servant. He was God's arrow that uh, God could shoot into the hearts of people, and it touched them deeply, and, and the impact was, was lasting. And then he says a word about his, his preparation his gift was that of speaking or preaching, proclamation. And this preparation took place in the, the shadow of the Father's hand. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me and concealed me in his quiver. Uh, there were 30 years of, of the servant's life when uh, he was hidden away. These are the so-called silent years of our Lord's ministry. When he didn't do any miracles, he didn't preach any sermons, he didn't do any of the things that we normally associate with, with greatness. He just uh, was there learning from the Father. He was the one who was being discipled. As he puts it in Isaiah 50, the Lord God woke him up every morning, morning by morning. He instructs me as one would instruct a, a disciple. The Father taught him. And he learned through the hurts and the pains and, and the, the hardship of, of poverty and living on the edge and and the death of Joseph and uh, the other uh, difficult circumstances that uh, God permitted to come into his life. Those were the, the hidden times, the, the times when God shaped him and made him into the man that he intended him to be. When he grew in, in grace and in favor with God and, and with man. Uh, and some of you find yourself today in that hidden place. Some of you are homemakers, and mothers, and you have small children to raise. And you're not able to engage right now in a very active ministry, and that's discouraging to you, but you can see that as a time of preparation when God hides you away in his quiver. 
and is sharpening, polishing, and preparing you to be the select arrow that God intends to use. It's also, I think, incentive and encouragement to those of you who, uh, who have children at home. That's, that's the secret place. That's, that's where your children can be sharpened and honed and taught to love their God and taught to walk, walk with him, you see. Those are not wasted years. Those are the really important years in our lives. Someone pointed out to me once that it, it just takes a few months to make a squash, but it takes years to make an oak. And uh, what God wants to produce is something that lasts, something that's solid. And uh, those years of training and preparation, honing, sharpening, are the, often the years when we're, when we're hidden away. When I read this, I thought again of our, our tendency to thrust into the public eye uh, prominent people who have just become Christians, outstanding uh, political figures or uh, professional athletes or, or even uh, notorious uh, converted criminals. Uh, we want them up front. We want them talking about uh, their relationship with Christ. They don't have anything to say. You listen to some of them, and it's just empty and vapid, and there's no maturity there. They don't have anything to say because they haven't been hidden away for, for a while. Uh, one of the, the saddest incidents, I think, as I look back uh, on my own experience at the church in California where I served, was what happened to Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, some of you know, uh, I'm sure all of you know who Cleaver was, the black uh, radical of the 60s, author of Soul on Ice, and uh, went off to Algeria to escape uh, prosecution, and uh, supposedly met Christ there, had a vision uh, of Christ, that he saw the face of Jesus and came back a uh, converted man, as he put it. And a couple of the staff people <clears throat> at Peninsula Bible Church, where I served, discipled uh, Eldridge, and they, they, they tried to get him not to, not to speak, you know, just, just learn Learn the word till you have something to say. But uh, Christendom being what it is, people began to ask him to speak, and he was up front, and he began to talk. And, and after a while, as many of you know, he had a failure of faith, and now as far as I know, he simply does not claim to be a Christian at all. And it was sad. From a human standpoint, uh, he was thrust into the public eye too quickly. He should have been hidden away and concealed had a chance to grow. That's what God did with the son. And, and then after 30 years, though he had not done any of the things that we normally associate with, with effective ministry, when he was baptized, the father said to him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Because he had something uh, to say. And uh, then he gives us a word about his mission. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. In other words, it was God's intention through Israel to display his character. Now, the first Israel was Jacob. You remember who Jacob was? He was Isaac's son. There was Abraham, to whom the promise was given. I'll make a great nation out of you, he said. Abraham had uh, Isaac, who was his son, the son of promise. And Isaac, uh, Isaac's son was Jacob. And uh, Jacob uh, had a certain ambivalence toward God, loving him and hating him and fighting him off and trying to get next to him. And finally, there was one climactic night when, when God uh, wrestled him to the floor and broke his leg, wrestled him to the ground, actually, and, 
as the text puts, puts it, dusted him up and, and broke his leg. And uh, uh, his name was changed to Israel, one who prevails with God. That's, that's the irony of that night of wrestling. Uh, Jacob gave up and lost, and he won. He defeated God on that occasion because he gave in. And he became a prince with God, one who prevails. And he had 12 sons, as you know, and those 12 sons became the head of the 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel. And it was God's purpose through that nation to manifest his glory. He wanted the whole world to see what he was like. That's why he chose the Jews. You know the little uh, aphorism, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Well, how odd of God to choose anybody. But he just happened to choose Israel, not because they had a uh, sort of a proclivity toward religious uh, thinking or they were great theologians or moral people. They, they, God just, the way he chooses us, he just chose them. And he chose the, this people to be on display to show forth the beauty of his character. As Paul puts it, it's, it was his purpose that through the Jews the oracles of God would come. The revelation that we have of God, the character of God came through the Jews. And they were a missionary people. It was God's plan that uh, he pour out his blessings on Israel. And the nations would see that and they would turn to God. The shortest psalm in the Psalter is Psalm 117. Interesting little psalm. All it says is God's been good to us. So the nations will come to know God. The us refers to Israel. And uh, God blessed this nation as he promised Abraham he would do. So the whole world could be blessed. They had a missionary mandate. But uh, they didn't fulfill it. The whole thing uh, uh, broke down into legalism and materialism. And and they failed in their mission. And so God says, well, we're going to start all over again. We're going to create a new Israel. So he brings into human history another Israel. The servant of the Lord is called here Israel. I don't know if you realize it or not, but Jesus' life was uh, Israel's history repeating itself. He was born in Canaan, and he sojourned in Egypt for a time, and then he came back to uh, Canaan. And Matthew, in Matthew 2, quotes Hosea 11, where Hosea, talking about uh, Israel coming out of Egypt, says, Out of Egypt have I brought my son. Matthew applies that passage directly to Jesus. It has nothing to do with the Messiah in the Old Testament. It refers to Israel. But Matthew saw the significance of the symbolism. Jesus went down into Egypt as Israel did. He was brought out of Egypt. And that's why Matthew could say, putting these words in God's mouth, out of Egypt have I brought my son. And then uh, Jesus began to minister to his own people and he chose 12 apostles. Why 12? Because he just liked the number 12? A good round number? No, because there were 12 sons of Jacob. Now Israel has 12 more sons, you see, the, the, the 12 apostles. And it's their responsibility to give witness to the, to the world. And uh, as you look at Jesus' life, you discover he is the perfect prophet. He's the one that's predicted in Deuteronomy 17 who would come. And Moses said when he comes, listen to him. And uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him the same way you listen to Moses. This is my prophet. 
He's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect king. He provided the perfect sacrifice. He gave the perfect covenant. Has it ever struck you that the Sermon on the Mount is the counterpart of the law given on the Mount? Uh, When the nation was born out of Egypt, the first thing that God did was to take them down to Sinai where Moses gave them the law. Jesus came out of Egypt, was uh, nurtured for a time, and then almost the first thing that he did was to go up on the mountain and begin to preach. That was his covenant with his people. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, I am the true vine. Everybody knows that verse. I'm the true vine. You're the branches. My father's the husband. Every branch in me that bears good fruit, he lifts it up, makes it produce more. Because without me, you can do nothing. You want to be fruitful, you attach yourself to me. He says, I'm the true vine. And the Greek word that he uses means authentic in contrast to bogus. Or false? What's he saying? He's saying, remember Israel? All through the Old Testament is described as a vine. Here in Isaiah, Isaiah 5, God says, I I planted Israel on the side of a hill. They were a a choice vine, a sorek, he calls it, the best of all the, 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 the vines. He planted it there on the side of a sunny hill. And he nurtured it, and he cared for it, and he protected it, and he came looking for fruit. And what did he get? These little bitter things that you could hardly stand, and then he breaks that down for us, materialism, greed, idolatry, they failed in their mission, and Jesus says, I'm the true vine, in contrast to Israel, and so he came on the scene, convinced that um, he would regather Israel, uh, this new beginning would, would produce results, there would be a new Israel, that uh, would display God's character to the world. And what happened? He began to preach. And at first, everyone loved him. They gathered around him. They loved to hear his words. What gracious words come out of his mouth, people said. And then he began to speak truth in such a way that people were shaken by it. And they began to realize that his agenda wasn't their agenda. And they began to drift away. And the, the clergy turned against him. And in the end... He saw that they were going to put him to death. He realized that that was, that was what was going to happen. They were going to kill him. And he was left with 12 apostles. That's all he had. At one point in his ministry, he said to the crowd, he said, addressed some hard words to the crowd. And they left. They walked off. And he said to the disciples, are you going to go too? And, and John said, well, where can we go? You're the only one that has the, etern- the words of eternal life. And he had poured his life into preaching and discipling and, and counseling and giving himself to people. And the whole thing just came unraveled. Nobody was coming to hear him anymore. And even his disciples were getting shaky. And he said to the Father, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. The word that's translated vain here is the word in Genesis 1 that Moses used to translate, uh, to uh, describe the condition of the earth after it fell. It is without form, shapeless, chaotic. And that's what Jesus saw. Everything's falling apart. Remember when we went through that book and I told you the philosopher tried on every philosophy of life. Tried materialism, existentialism, uh, idealism. He tried them all. 
And he came to the conclusion that they are all empty, meaningless, nothingness, he said. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, the servant came to the place that he said, God is vanity. I have done what God called me to do. And it isn't working. It isn't working. Now, I know there are people here this morning that can identify. You have given your marriage everything you have to give, and it's just not working. Or you've given your employer the very best years of your life, and as you're ready to settle down into your career track and retire, you get sacked. And there just aren't any jobs out there anymore. Or some of you, we've got a number of pastors here who have labored in churches for years, given themselves to counseling and discipling and ministering and serving, and you were underpaid and underappreciated and overworked, and then then you, you got fired. And you're not just about to go back into ministry again. I read uh, just this last week again about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is by far the greatest theologian that the Americas have ever produced. He gave himself to something like 18 hours a day of studying the Word in addition to his pastor responsibilities. He was the pastor of a church in Southampton, Massachusetts. And, and in addition to his, uh, uh, his role as a pastor, he, was, he, was, he also studied and, to teach the Word. He ministered for 25 years to that church. And it was from that church in Southampton, Massachusetts, that the Great Awakening began to spread, spread throughout the colonies as a result of the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. You know how they rewarded him after 25 years? They fired him. Because he had this weird idea that to to take communion, you ought to be a Christian. So they fired him. And the man almost starved to death. He couldn't get another job. And I'm sure he must have felt as as the servant felt. It's all for nothing. You know, it's all right to complain to God. You can ball God out. He can handle it. He, he isn't put off by our anger and our frustration. That's what the servant is doing. This is the impeccable, sinless son of God who's bawling God out. Have you ever done that? I have. There are times that I've gone up in the mountains and just told God off. I really don't like him anymore. I wish he'd leave me alone. You know, why do you ever call me into this, this ministry in the first place? You know, why, why can't I do something else? But you know what happens? After everything is said and done, you fall into God's arms. Because you don't have any other place to go. You're like those disciples you know, to whom Jesus said, Are you going to go too? And Peter John says, To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's exactly what the servant did. Look at the end of verse 4. After firing this uh, shot at God, he says, I have labored to no purpose, and I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. And he says, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. God doesn't say to him, tut, tut, you shouldn't feel that way. Because you really can't do a thing about your feelings. You know, and, and I, I, have you ever had an experience where your kids just absolutely lost it? They got so frustrated that they shouted at you, I hate you, I hate you. And, 
doesn't do any good to say, no, you don't really hate us. I mean, we know what they're going through. They do at that moment. They hate us. But then you know what happens? They fall into our arms. Because they don't have any other place to go. And that's what happened to the servant. He says, well, things are going badly. I really don't like the situation that I'm in. But my reward is with my God. So I'm going to trust him. Like David, you know, hanging on by his fingernails. So Psalms where he talks about being on the side of a precipice and his foot is about to slip. and But he's just hanging on for dear life. Because he doesn't have any other place to go. And so the Lord says to him, verse 7. Now, you'll notice, at least in the NIV, there's a dash after the Lord says, because the Lord doesn't speak until verse 6. In verse 5, the the verse that follows is really parenthetical. Now the Lord says, that is, the one who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Uh, I want you to underscore that. To bring Jacob back to him. That's the other word for Israel. And then in parallel, and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored, it's the word for glorified or made weighty, given substance, given worth, given value in the eyes of the Lord. God thinks I'm somebody special. I've been called to gather Israel, and my God has been my, my strength. See? He reminds himself of that truth, and then God speaks in verse 6. He says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a phrase that Simeon quoted when he took that little baby in his arms. Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple and he picked up that little baby and he said, this, this baby will be a light to the Gentiles. He quotes this. You see what the Lord is saying? He says to his servant, it's too small a thing for you to gather Israel and Jacob. I'm going to use you to gather in the whole world. You see, our Lord was looking at the cross and the loss of his ministry, and he thought everything was coming to an end. And the Lord says to him, you've got it all wrong. I'm going to do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. You think I want you to gather Israel. I want you to gather the whole world. You think I want Jews sitting around my table. I want Russians and Romanians and Czechoslovakians and people from Hungary and from the Americas and from Idaho. That's how we got in on this deal. It's because God saw that it was a small thing for our Lord to gather Israel. He had a greater, bigger purpose in mind, you see. He wanted to do exceeding abundantly above anything Jesus could hope or imagine or dream or think. Paul had the same experience. We're going to be, uh, next week, we're going to start a new series in the book of Galatians, that wonderful book about how we grow. And he's going to underscore the fact that we we grow by grace. It's not by self-effort. It's just God works his magic on us that we begin to to change. And uh, uh, Paul wrote that book. There's some disagreement here, but for myself. Paul wrote that book to the churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. Those were the churches that were planted 
by the Apostle Paul. He went there and preached the gospel and planted churches and left leadership and instructed that leadership. That's where he was stoned at Lystra. They tried to kill him there. He preached his heart out in Galatia and discipled and ministered and walked faithfully with with God because God had called him to that, that ministry. And then he writes in Second Timothy, the last of his books, just before Nero took him out on the Ostian way and chopped his head off. He said, everyone in Asia has turned against him, against me. Do you know what he's talking about? The churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. They had all turned against the Apostle Paul. But you see, he wasn't discouraged. You read the book of Second Timothy, and you can see that there's great hope in the Apostle's eyes and his mind because uh, he sees that God has a, has a greater thing to do because God's not just interested in the first century. He's interested in the second century, in the third century in the 19th century, in the 20th century. And we read Paul's letters today and it puts starch in our spines and makes men and women out of us because God had something greater in mind than Paul's uh, success in the first century, you see. Now, you see, it's understanding this, this idea that made Jesus face Jerusalem with his face like a flint. He went through this uh, time of terrible despair and disillusionment. But uh, then he, he walked into Jerusalem with his head high because he saw that God had something greater in mind than the mere gathering of, of the nation of Israel. Let me show you an interesting verse. Turn to John 12. <clears throat> this is a verse that people struggle with, and I, I didn't understand it until I saw it against the background of Isaiah 49. Uh, a few days before the Passover, pilgrims are gathering in, in Jerusalem. A million of them, they estimate. From all over the world, from uh, as far west as Spain, as far east as uh, Mesopotamia, Persia. And uh, they were all gathering there the day of the triumphal entry. Notice verse 19 of chapter 12. The Pharisees say, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after it. Now, look at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was up in the north. It was was a town that had been Hellenized. It was more... uh, Culturated by Greek thought than any of the other uh, towns of of Israel, and they probably thought Peter would be, uh, Philip would be more understanding. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we want to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The, the striking thing about that statement is that for the last year, Jesus had been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now some Greeks come and say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He uses the same word here that's used in Isaiah, or at least the Greek counterpart of the Hebrew word, that's used in Isaiah 49. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. I'm glor- I've been glorified. Well, how did he know that God was now in a position to glorify his son? Because Greeks were coming. People from the ends of of the world. 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jews, Hungarians, Africans, people from the United States, people from Boise, Idaho. But you see, he had to die. He had, he had to go to that period, through that period of disillusionment when everything was falling apart, when his whole mission seems to, seemed to be going awry. He had to face that place of death. All that was left to him was the twelve. The twelve apostles, and these were the men who went out and began to preach. I think that's what Paul means in First Timothy, in that odd little snatch from a Christian hymn, uh, early first century Christian hymn. He quotes it. He says, God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit of God. He was preached by messengers. And uh, the, most translations say angels, but the Greek word angels... Uh, our word angel is simply an anglicized form of, of the Greek word angelos, angels. It means messengers. He was preached by messengers. What messengers? The twelve sons of Israel, the twelve apostles. And the next line is he was believed on in the world. And the gospel began to spread throughout the whole world. And God did do exceeding abundantly above anything our Lord could ever have conceived. You remember how this passage uh, begins? The text begins by saying, Hear, O islands, Shemu i'im in Hebrew. Hear, O islands. If I were to ask you um, uh, for the most uh, familiar passage in the Old Testament, what would you say? Probably Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's the first commandment, the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. This is God speaking to Israel. Hear. In Isaiah 49, the servant says, listen to me. Listen to me. And he uses the same word. But uh, here it's plural because he's talking to the island. Shmu'in. Listen, islands. So he takes that uh, limited theological statement of the Old Testament, Hero Israel, and he gathers all of us in. Here. All you Gentiles. That's why we're here this morning, see? We're here to listen to Jesus. For that reason and no other reason. So uh, uh, if... Uh, you know, you set out to do what you believe is God's will, and everything that uh, bad that could happen did happen to you. That is not Murphy's ghost that's haunting you. It may well be that God's intention is to exceed your expectations. He has something in mind that you never dreamed, never imagined for you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to um, set our faces like a flint to continue to pursue your will, even though it seems that, um, that there's no payoff. We have to cling to this truth that uh, our reward is with you. Our vindication is in your hand. We have to trust you. We have to cling to you because we have no one else to turn to. We must keep on doing what you've called us to do, no matter how much it hurts. 
because we know that uh, you have in mind some greater plan than we could ever envision. And so give us the grace to, to do the will of God. Help us to realize that it's through faith and endurance that the promises are, are required. Make us faithful to do your will, whatever it may be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.